Well, hello, and welcome to Grasping Scripture. Glad you could join us today for this episode of our podcast. As you're joining me, I want to encourage you. Learn from God's Word. Hear what it has to say. Take His Word and follow it. Seeking to live it out in your life as you live out your relationship with Christ as Savior and Lord. And if you don't know Christ as Savior and Lord yet, well, I pray that this will be an opportunity for you to learn about Him and for God to impress upon your heart the need to turn to the Savior. Join me as we turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we look around this world, as we see what's going on in our communities, in our families, our schools, our government, our world, Father, it's a mess. We see the consequences of sin. We see the destruction that sin brings in lives and in relationships. The hopelessness that is fostered in the hearts of those that are not listening to you. And Lord, we lift all of this up to you knowing that you are about the work of redeeming that you are taking what is the consequence of sin in our world and in our lives. And you have atoned for it in the cross of Christ. And you offer us forgiveness and restoration. And so, Father, as we turn our hearts to study your word in these coming moments, Lord, we ask that you would help us to hear your voice and to follow you with our hearts. Lord, that our lives would reflect your presence, that we would be instruments in your hands as you have invited us to be part of your redemptive work by sharing the message of the gospel of Christ. Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that is sensitive to your spirit. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, we've made it to the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians. As we look at this chapter, we're going to dig into some of what is going on, and it's going to reference back in, well, in many places, back to the 16th chapter of Acts, and even on into the 17th chapter, maybe a little bit. I'm not going to spend time reading over in the book of Acts, but I'll encourage you to do that. It is the account of Paul's initial experience with Silas and Timothy there in Thessalonica, and it tells you a little bit about what's going on that Paul's going to refer back to here in the second chapter. But as we turn our attention to it, let's look at this reminder to the Thessalonian church of how Paul had proclaimed the good news there and what their response was. Um, Now, be mindful that Evidence is that Paul and Silas and Timothy were only there ministering in that community for two or three months before they were driven out of town 
by opposition and by accusations from the Jewish community against them, uh, about them stirring up conflict and, and disunity within the community. And of course, that's what Romans did not tolerate. So the Roman governor there, the, the Roman leadership in the city, uh, then had to step in. So they were forced out of the city. This was a young church. They had just encountered the gospel. They really hadn't been discipled a whole lot at this point. And yet they were left to fend for themselves. And of course, the first chapter talks about um, how Paul reflects on them and lifts them in prayer and, and gets these encouraging words about them and what God is doing there. But he's expressing to him as well that he has a heart for them. Well, let's look at what he says in chapter two, starting in the first verse. He says, you yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. It was short, but it wasn't a failure. How do they know that? Well, they're brothers and sisters. Uh, they are the redeemed in the community. They are the church. So the visit wasn't a waste. He goes on. You know how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. You might remember the um, episode of him being in jail at Philippi. Go back and look it up. It's well worth the read. Yet, as we continue in verse 2, Yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly, in spite of great opposition. So Paul's drawing on his own example there of the suffering they experienced and yet their ability to proclaim the gospel and to do it effectively. Why is he reminding them of this? Because they have been a church under persecution who has been standing and is now being encouraged again to stand bold in spite of that great opposition. He goes on in verse 3. So you can see, we were not preaching with any deceit or, or impure motives or trickery. Now, how can he say that? Well, very simply, if you're running a con and you experience a lot of opposition and things are difficult and you're being persecuted, um, you don't stick it out. You bail. They didn't bail. They didn't bail at Philippi and really they didn't bail at Thessalonica. They were driven out at Thessalonica, but they didn't bail. Now, what's the significance there? It speaks to their motives. When they were willing to endure hardship, and suffering, and in spite of all that, still proclaim the gospel, and you can see the results of that proclamation of the gospel in the lives of the people in the Thessalonian church. All of that is a testimony to the, the validity of the message, to the sincerity, uh, the, the purity of the delivery of that message as well. It goes on, for we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we've never sought it from you 
or anyone else. So Paul's laying the groundwork there. He says, look, here's the focus. Here's the one thing we care about. What does God think about us? Wow. What a paradigm shift that would be for so many. Maybe even sometimes in our own lives. What a shift to stop. And instead of wondering what family, friends, co-workers, complete strangers, um, quote, friends online, what any of those people think, if we were to step back from that and simply focus on the question, what does God think about me, about this behavior, about this choice, this action, this post I'm about to make, would it change the way we live our lives? Would it change our focus? I dare say it would. And not in a bad way. All of us need to spend, including myself, more time being concerned about what God thinks. That our purpose would be to please God, not people. Because he alone is the one that examines the motives of our heart. Everyone else can have an opinion about what our motives are. God's the one that sees the motives of our heart. And Paul just explains to the Thessalonian church, look, we didn't come in flattering you and we didn't do all these things that that you would expect from people coming in trying to benefit from you. Uh, There were those that would come into town and would start flattering people because it would result in them receiving some financial gain. He's going, that wasn't us. Just look at what we did. That's not how it operated. We didn't pretend to be your friends. In fact, we went out and suffered for you not to get your money. We didn't take any. And not for human praise because that's never been our driving force. if, If you're doing stuff just to get praised, If that was Paul's motivation, let's just be honest. When we read the story of his ministry and his life, he was horrible at it. Oh, we all think, oh, Apostle Paul, I mean, this spiritual giant, this, you know, his contemporaries didn't think that way about him. I mean, within the body of Christ, the believers, I think they did, but most of the people he dealt with when he went into a new city to proclaim the gospel. Or even sometimes when he went back to visit a city he'd been before to proclaim the gospel and to disciple believers. The prevailing response was not necessarily one of awe or praise. There was a lot of conflict Paul had to deal with. Let that shed some light on our motivations and the things that we respond to. Well, in verse 7, Paul goes on to say this. He says, as apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you. But instead, we were like children. And uh, one of the ways that can be translated and expressed is that we we acted kindly towards you. Uh, But we were like children among you. Or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. We were there with you. We weren't there 
for you. We were there with you and for you. So he's drawing them back to that memory of when he and the other apostles came into that community, what their purpose was, how they behaved, that they had a right to come in. And for those that had become believers, they had a right to use their apostolic authority to say, hey, get it done, you know. But they chose to not relate that way. Instead, they chose to be kind. They chose to be caring. They chose to walk beside the Thessalonian believers, not lord over the Thessalonian believers. Is there an example there? Oh, yeah. There's a lot we can see there. A lot that echoes the very teachings of Christ as to how we should behave towards one another how we go about genuinely encouraging one another. And in fact, we may see a little more about that. Let's keep looking. Verse 9 says, Do you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. So he's saying, look, we didn't let this idea that we were in it for the money get in the way of the message. He said, we had skills. Paul was a tent maker by trade. We had skills. We came in, we worked. In fact, we worked beside you so that you could see what we were doing and it provided for us. We toiled to earn a living so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you as we preach the good news to you. That was a powerful testimony to the church at Thessalonica. Now, before you get all up in arms and go, hey, we shouldn't pay preachers. Hey, I'm a preacher. It's kind of nice to be able to pay my bills. I have been a bivocational pastor. Um, I've, I've done that. I've, I've worked when I wasn't a pastor. I mean, it's, you know, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. This isn't saying pastors shouldn't be paid or churches shouldn't have a paid staff. But you need to understand those staff positions are callings and they're roles to be played in the life of the church. And we can address pastoral pay or other staff pay elsewhere. Uh, there are passages that do address it. But here Paul is saying, look, you, you can't even use that as a claim against us. We were there for you and with you. And we did everything we could to not be a burden on you so that it wouldn't be an obstacle. He goes on in verse 10 to say, You yourselves are our witnesses, and so is God. Now, one of the things in not just the first century world, but especially coming out of a Jewish background, if there was an accusation or there was a claim made and it was going to have legal standing, it had to have at least two witnesses other than the primary person that could give testimony to it. And here Paul has crafted this discussion in such a way that he's bringing it to the point of saying, look, the implication is these accusations are being made against himself and and maybe the other apostles that were there, uh, Silas and Timothy. But he's saying, look, that's not the way it was. You remember that's not the way it was. Here's what we did in front of you. So you yourselves are one witness, the church there at Thessalonica. The other witness is God. 
So I'm claiming when they say that, that it's untrue. And I have two witnesses to back that up, you and God. Well, that that's a pretty significant list of witnesses, wouldn't you say? It says, you yourselves are our witnesses, and so is God, that we were devout and honest and faultless towards all of you believers. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. Treated you as a father treats his own children. Now, I acknowledge there are plenty of dads out there that don't get it right. Okay? But there were two key philosophies on fatherhood that were prevalent in the time that Paul writes this. And one was the the Roman idea of fatherhood, what that looks like and how that plays out. The Romans were all about results. They wanted to teach virtue and and the avoidance of vice and, and things that were acceptable in society and in life to their children. And the dads did that in a very, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, harsh way. Roman fathers tended to be very strict, very uh, punishment-oriented. Whereas Greek fathers were encouraged by some of their own thinkers and philosophers, guys like uh, Plutarch, that what they ought to do is, in fact, model for their children. They should praise their children. They should help their children reason and understand why they should behave in a certain way. They should, should exhort them, advise them well, teach them. Sounds almost Old Testament biblical. Hmm. Like Deuteronomy 6, maybe? Yeah. Those were the two prevailing philosophies. And when Paul here says that they treated each of them as a father treats his own children, he wasn't talking about a Roman father. He was talking about the Greek concept. Because remember, they're in northern Greece, Macedonia. He's relating to them the the Greek and I think even the Old Testament biblical idea of a father as one that educates, a father as one that shapes and guides and builds his children, not one that rips them down. So he says, and you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraging you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy, for he called you to share his kingdom and glory. Hmm. I'm a dad. And I can tell you as a dad, I love verse 12. If that's the example of what a father is supposed to be, I will admit I have not always been and am not always the father I ought to be because I am a broken sinner, saved by grace, redeemed, used by God, but imperfect. But my hope is, and my hope for each of you that has kids, is that together we can say we pleaded with you, we encouraged you, and we urged you to live your lives in a way 
that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share his kingdom and his glory. Hmm. Starting in verse 13, we have a section where Paul begins to remind the Thessalonian church about how they receive the good news of Christ, that their response to the gospel and all that was involved there. So let's look at verse 13. Therefore, we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. So Paul is expressing his thanks there, his his praise and thanks to God that when they declared the gospel, it wasn't, oh, well, that's another interesting idea. It was, whoa, this is the truth of God. This is God's word. And folks, what makes the difference there isn't Paul's ability to preach or reason or argue or present the gospel, we fall into that trap. How many out there have have hit that point where you had the opportunity to share the gospel with someone and you listened to that little nagging voice that said, you're not good enough. You don't know enough. You don't know the right words. You can't do it like, you know, I don't know. Pick somebody you know that you admire in their ability to present the gospel and say, you know, I can't do it like them, therefore I can't do it. That is a lie from Satan to keep you from declaring God's word because it is God's spirit at work in the heart of the person you're talking to that makes all the difference, not how good you are with the words not how well you do in presenting the gospel. Present it with a pure heart. Share with folks who you were before Christ, how you came to know Christ, and who who you are now, who God is in your life today, and what he's doing. If you can do that, which you ought to be able to, if you've experienced it, you ought to be able to talk about it. If you can cover those three areas, then you've got everything you need. He's working in the hearts of someone else. I'm fascinated as a pastor how over the past, wow, 20 some odd years uh, in preaching, how I will craft a sermon. That doesn't fascinate me. But uh, when I craft a sermon and deliver it, It doesn't happen all the time, but occasionally I will have someone come up to me after the service and talk to me about how when I said such and such, it impacted their life in this way, and God showed them this and and all of this, and I'm sitting there going, I don't remember ever saying that in the message, or that wasn't the point there. And, And what I mean by that isn't that they weren't paying attention. It's that God was working on their hearts. And he may have used something I said as a launching point. But what they heard was what God had for them, not what I had planned. We get hung up on ourselves a little too often, I think. 
And we forget God's the one doing all the heavy lifting. He says, follow me. Be obedient. Follow me. Go, tell, make disciples. That's our job. He does the saving. He does the life changing. He does the redeeming. We get to tell everybody about it. And that is an awesome, awesome thing. Well, again, he goes on. Verse 14. And then, dear brothers and sisters, uh, and then what happened before that? Remember, they responded to the gospel. They, as he says, you accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. And then in 14, and then dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen. In this way, you imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea, who because of their belief in Christ Jesus suffered from their own people, the Jews. For some of the Jews killed the prophets, and some even killed the Lord Jesus. Now they have persecuted us too. They fail to please God, and they work against all humanity as they try to keep us from preaching the good news of salvation to the Gentiles. By doing this, they continue to pile up their sins. But the anger of God has caught up with them at last. What is Paul saying there? Is he pronouncing some horrid curse upon the Jewish nation? He's proclaiming a reality upon the Jews and everyone else. And he, he loves the Jews. Paul is a Jew. When he goes into a town, the first group of people he proclaims the gospel to are the Jews. Why? Because he understands that Christ came out of the Jewish people. That it is the Jewish scripture that points towards the coming Messiah. And so he goes to them first. But he acknowledges, look, throughout our history, what have we done to the prophets? We've martyred them. What did we as, as the Jews do to Jesus? We killed him. And now that Paul is a follower of Christ, he has seen firsthand, well, he saw it firsthand before because he was one of the ones persecuting, uh, but he sees firsthand the persecution that he receives for the gospel. And now he looks at the Thessalonian church, Gentiles, and he sees them being persecuted by their own countrymen, by other Gentiles who still worship false gods. And they're being persecuted because they no longer worship false gods. And Paul's not understating it when he says that the Jews had, had failed to please God and work against all humanity. How do they work against all humanity? Anyone that stands against the gospel of Christ being presented to the world, and in this case against it being presented to the Gentiles, is standing against humanity because all of us are condemned apart from the redeeming work of Christ. It is through the message of the gospel that we are saved. 
and anything that hinders the declaration of that gospel, the spread of that gospel, is ultimately working against everyone. It's hindering their opportunity to respond and to find life, salvation, purpose, meaning, significance, to find who they were created to be in relationship with God. It is a big deal. And God tolerated it for a long time. But now the dividing point has come. The world is no longer separated by Jew or Gentile. The world is separated by another criteria altogether. Saved and unsaved. Which one do you fall into? Well, as we finish out chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, we see Paul talking about his desire to return to Thessalonica, or more appropriately, reflecting back and explaining to them how much they meant to him and how much he desired to get back, but there were obstacles to that. Let's hear what he says. In verse 17, Dear brothers and sisters, After we were separated from you for a little while, though our hearts never left you, we tried very hard to come back because of your, or excuse me, because of our intense longing to see you again. So he's saying, look, we really wanted to get back there. We had to leave, but our hearts were still with you and we wanted to get back. Verse 18, we wanted very much to come to you. And I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. And we don't know exactly what form that took. But the devil kept putting obstacles in the way that prevented Paul from being there. And that's what Paul understood to be happening. That he had a desire to do this, and and he, he felt a, a connection and a longing there, but something was hindering that work. And he's just willing to say, it is the adversary, the accuser, the enemy. It is Satan prevented us. Verse 19, after all, and here is a beautiful expression from a pastor's heart to the congregation there at Thessalonica, a beautiful expression of what they mean to him. He says, after all, what gives us hope and joy and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before the Lord Jesus when he returns? It is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. Oh, what a beautiful sentiment. What a beautifully appropriate sentiment. That Paul is reminding them how much they mean to him, but he's also reminding them as to what matters to the Lord. And what is that? That we are faithful in proclaiming the gospel. That lives are changed. That eternity is changed. And we can say, what gives us hope and joy? And what's going to be our proud reward 
and our crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It's you. You are that important to us. You mean that much, not you as a notch on the belt. Oh, somebody else made a professional. No, you, who you are. Those people that our heart longs for and that even though we had to leave, our hearts stayed with you. The people we have tried again and again to get back to. The people that we worked beside so that nothing would get in the way as we showed you God and his love. What a beautiful thing for him to say. What a wonderful thing for them to hear. You want to talk about encouragement? To have someone tell you, look, our, our hope and our joy, the thing that we're going to be proud of, the, the thing that we're going to view as a, a crown on our head as we stand before Christ when he returns, that thing that, that, well, that thing that's encapsulated in hearing the words of Jesus, well done, my good and faithful servant. What's well done? Look at the lives. Look at the lives of those that responded to the gospel. As Paul says, it is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. What an encouragement. And I'll leave this chapter with a question. Are you someone's pride and joy in the Lord? And do you take pride and joy in someone else and their relationship to the Lord? As believers, we ought to be able to answer yes to both of those things. Because that's the stuff that matters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Again, as we study your word, we are moved by what you have proclaimed. Father, as you led Paul to speak these words of encouragement and reminder to that congregation at Thessalonica, Father, we know that the truth of those words still holds to us today. Lord, help us to take both encouragement and conviction from those words. Challenge our hearts where we fall short of who you are calling us to be, where we have shirked the task that you have laid before us. And Father, equip us by your Spirit, and if necessary, drive us forward into obedience to your will. That we might experience some of this joy, some of this celebration that the Apostle Paul is experiencing here as we think about those whose lives you have changed and that you've allowed us to be part of that. That we would find our pride and our joy in that. Not in flattery, not in praise, not in monetary gain, but in you. In the only praise that matters from anybody. You telling us, that we've done well. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.